Well, hello there, and a huge welcome to Book Choice, Publisher's Choice on Fine Music Radio. I'm your host of Book Choice, Paige Nick, and every month we have this very special book show because we welcome some of South Africa's top publishers and South Africa's number one bookseller, Exclusive Books, to come into the FMR studio and tell us about what they're publishing right now, as well as what they're reading and selling right now, what new authors they've got coming out, and as an added bonus at the same time, they like to give us a bit of behind-the-scenes information on how publishing works in South Africa. So this is one of my favorite shows. Each of the people we'll be hearing from today, and the publishing teams that they work with, do quite a lot of different jobs every day. Part of their job is to look at what's happening in global publishing, what's trending, what's happening in our local markets, what topics people are thinking about and talking about, and what's culturally relevant. And then they take all that information and use it to try and decide what kinds of books to bring out for our market in South Africa. Once they've decided what kinds of books they want to publish here, they spend their days and often their nights too, working on the production process of those books. They design covers and there's so much that goes into this. They pick paperweights, they choose fonts, they get busy with page layouts, editing and planning the whole printing process, even down to buying the paper. So next time you pick up a book, spare a thought for the dozens of hours behind the scenes that go into the birth of every single book, and that's before it's even been released. Because once a book's been released, then comes the publicity part. That's the events, the launches, the festivals, and everything that goes into selling a book. These publishers have super busy lives, which is why we're so grateful that they join us in the studio every month to share what they've got going on right now. So we're going to start out the show today with Viz Chetty from Penguin Random House, and he's going to take us through their latest stack of books. Then the Jonathan Ball publishing team always has a huge pile of books and interesting authors to talk about, so they'll be here to tell us about their latest books too, and their latest releases. And at the end of the show, we welcome Bacha Bricker from Exclusive Books. Today, Bacha has a very special treat for us, in the form of a riveting interview she did with Dame Mary Beard, who is a much-acclaimed English scholar of ancient Rome. She's a world-renowned author, as well as a trustee of the British Museum, and formerly she held a personal professorship of classics at the University of Cambridge. So you'll want to stay tuned for this interview. And all of this book talk is going to be bookended by some wonderful music, starting with this first track, which is Sarabanda from Sweet in D Minor, composed by George Frederick Handel.
Welcome back. We're going to open the show with Viz Chetty, who is the sales manager at Penguin Random House. So that means that Viz manages sales going into exclusive books, bargain books, take a lot, loot, and all the main book trade outlets where you buy your books. Viz and his team also work on marketing. That's the various advertising campaigns that go behind every single book, not to mention managing all the book launches. And that's not all. Viz is also a product manager. So he's very involved in what it takes to bring a book out, from concept to book design, cover design, and even release. So welcome to the show, a very busy Viz. Let's hear about Penguin's latest fiction, non-fiction, YA, and children's books. What have you got for us? Hi, Paige, and hi to all the FMR listeners. Uh, it's Viz Chetty here from Penguin Random House again. Just a reminder, I am the trade and sales manager for the company. Basically, I have the pleasurable job of selling all these brilliant titles into all the major bookstores. It's a great joy in my life. And I'm so glad to have a new list with you today. That's uh, These are books that are out now in September and maybe some in October. So they're just around the corner if you don't see it. But for most of these, I try and present them as they appear in stores. Right, I'm going to kick off. I'll give you a fair warning. This is a slightly heavier nonfiction list this month. Um, we didn't have a lot of big fiction coming in, but... We always have more on the horizon, so bear with me if it is a little non-fiction heavy. But the ones that I do have, you are going to love. The first one is The Diary of a CEO by Stephen Bartlett. You might recognize him from the podcast that he has. He's, he's a very young British gentleman who's started a few businesses and are highly successful he started a podcast called The Diary of a CEO. If you haven't had a listen to it, you should. It's brilliant. He brings in some of the best minds, the best business people and teachers, philosophers, all kinds of people from different walks of life who've had a lot of success in their life. And he interviews them for, for a few hours. It's a great podcast. Now, this book, The Diary of a CEO, is based on that podcast. So it includes interviews um, with some of these some of the people that he's featured on the cast. Um, it also covers his 33 laws that he's learned to uh, learned along the way of being a businessman. 33 time-tested hacks and tips that you could use uh, to enhance your life and your business as well. So The Diary of a CEO by Stephen Bartlett is a great nonfiction title. If that's out now, you'll find it in all major bookstores. You cannot miss it. Right. The next one, let's go to some fiction. Bridge by Lauren Bierkus. She is back. We did a book a few years ago called Afterland, but she's more famously known for her amazing book, Shining Girls, Broken Monsters, uh, and and a whole lot of other books. She is a fantastic author. She's now been put onto the onto the international stage, and she has really done well there. Uh, her TV series based on The Shining Girls featured on Apple TV a few months ago, so that's also a great watch if you haven't seen it. But um, the new one is called Bridge, and it's about a young woman named Bridget Kittinger. She is the daughter of Joe Kittinger, who is this really mercurial uh, neuroscientist. And she has always been a very mercurial character, very eccentric. And the book starts off with Joe having just passed and Bridge and her best friend Dom going through her belongings and cleaning up the house and all that stuff. And as they go through these belongings of her mother, of her late mother, uh, they come across something that Joe has been working on for a while. And what that is, it's called the dream worm. And it's a psychedelic drug, which once consumed, allows you to traverse different dimensions. So there's a nice science sci-fi element to the book as well. And what they quickly realize after finding Joe's 
journal is that her mother could be uh, dead on this plane, but she could be alive on another plane. And so that sets them off using uh, this drug called the dream worm to traverse dimensions in search of her mother. At the same time, you've got powers that want to get their hands on this drug and on this power. So they'll stop at nothing to get it and they deal with that. So it's a really fast-paced sci-fi thriller by Lauren Beer because I think she's sort of playing in what she knows and what she loves to write about. So I hope you like it. The book is called Bridge and that's Lauren Birkus. The next one is a translation. We published a book by Herman Lachenkhan last year somewhere. It was called Hurkent. We've got the English translation of that book. It's called Son of a Whore. You will see it out in stores everywhere. You know, from early readings of, of the Afrikaans edition, we had many readers coming to us saying, ah, oh, you know, I wish, I wish you guys published this in English because I prefer to read it in English or I want to read it in English and, and we didn't have it. So now we finally got it translated. It will be in stores soon. That's Son of a Ho by Herman Lathakad. It covers his life and everything that he's lived through in, in his life and what he's done so far. It's a great book. I, w- I would highly recommend it. If you haven't read Hurkant and you want to read it in English, this is a good one to go for. Okay, then the next one is also out in stores. It's by Greg Mills, uh, the author of Why Africa is Poor. If you don't know, he's the CEO of the Brent House Foundation. And he's a wonderful author. He's, they, his foundation has done so many uh, great research studies and things. So part of that study came, this book came about from part of that study, which is the book is called Rich State, Poor State, uh, Why Some Nations Fail and Why Some Succeed. It's all in the step line. I wouldn't have to go too much into it. But basically what they've done is they looked at countries that have thrived and have bounced back from tremendous adversity and become even better than they were before and others that were great and that have went backwards, that are not doing as well as they were before. So that's that's what this book covers, Rich State, Poor State by Greg Mills. It's a fascinating look at, at some of these countries that have really come a long way and have brought great economic success to their people and their countries and the ones that haven't. So if you are in the market for something like that or you like reading it, uh, it's a great airport read. <laughs> if you like that, you could you could pick it up at the airport and just read it on the plane. It's a brilliant read. Rich State, Poor State by Greg Mills. As I said, he is the author of Why Africa is Poor. So if you've loved that book, you probably will like this one too. Um, then the next one, let's go fiction this time, is by Lisa Jewell. The book is called None of This is True. It's a great thriller. If you haven't read Lisa Jewell's books, you should. She's a really, really good mystery, suspense thriller author. In the last few years, we've worked with her and we've published quite a few with her, almost one every year. And she never lets us down. Now, this one, she sort of follows, you know, things that she has done in the past, but also she looks at, she has twists in this book that you might not see coming. That's not in her usual wheelhouse. And it works, though. So the book is None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. And it's it follows the path of two women, Alex and Josie. They are at this restaurant and they're celebrating their birthday. They don't know each other at this point, but through some conversation, they realize that they are birthday twins. So they share the same birthday and it turns out they were actually born in the same hospital as well. Alex is a journalist and a podcaster. And having discovered uh, Josie and have met her, she wonders if this could be a great opportunity to create a new podcast. And since they share the same birthday and they're born in the same hospital and their lives are very different, it would be interesting to explore that. So she proposes to Josie that she starts sharing, they share stories with with each other on the podcast in the recording studio that Alex owns. As they go through this process, Alex starts to realize that Josie has been hiding some very dark secrets. And before she knows it, Josie has sort of 
intertwined herself into Alex's life, into her home. And that's where things start to get nervy. And then very, very suddenly, Josie disappears from the picture. And that's when Alex discovers that Josie's left behind some terrible stuff in her wake that affects her family and obviously herself. So it's a great little thriller. It's something that she's trying. Uh, it's something that she's done before, but there's new stuff in there that you would probably love. So if you if you love Lisa Jewell novels, this will be a great little trip for you. Um, that's one for the thriller and mystery market. The last one uh, is... Legends by Matthew Blackman and Nick Dahl. You will remember these guys. They did a few books with us recently. We did one called Rose Gallery, which covers all the scoundrels and the bad people in our in our history. And, and in this new book, it covers all the heroes and all the good guys, so to speak. Uh, so it's called Legends. It covers 12 pivotal figures in South African history uh, who've brought great change, positive change to our country, who've who've made the world a better place for us. People like Nelson Mandela, people like King Mushweshwe, people like Sela Malan and Marie Makeba and so forth. There are 12 people in this book and this book covers their lives, where they came from, their flaws even, and how they managed to bring good positive change uh, to our world. Um, so the book is called Legends. It's sort of the alternate version of Rogue's Gallery. So if you've read Rogue's Gallery, you should read this one because this is the other side of it. That's my list for this week. I hope you like it. I think it's a great list. There's a great books. We've got so much more coming. I'll be with you guys next month to tell you about the best titles coming out in October. Thank you. Thank you to Viz and the Penguin Random House team for this ever more fantastic selection of books to choose from. For more info on any of the titles Viz mentioned and their shelves of other books, you can visit penguinrandomhouse.co.za. You can also follow them on social media. Just look for Penguin Random House South Africa. You know, Christmas is coming up, so I urge you to keep a close ear on this show in case anything appeals to you and you'd like to hint loudly around your loved ones that you'd like it to appear with your name on it. Alternately, if you're looking to buy something for someone for Christmas, listen up. There should be something on the show for everybody on your list. Smile
Glory of Love by 8 Mrs. Croon from the album Skirt. And you're tuned into Book Choice, Publisher's Choice on Fine Music Radio with me, your book-loving host, Paige Nick. Today's show is one of our special Book Choice shows because it's Publisher's Choice, which means once a month we invite a whole group of publishers and South Africa's favorite bookseller, Exclusive Books, to come into the studio and tell us which of the books they've been working on that are coming out now have caught their eye. Our next segment is with Jonathan Ball Publishers. Now, Jonathan Ball have been publishing great fiction and also the most excellent non-fiction right here in South Africa since 1976. In fact, they kind of specialize in local non-fiction. So chances are, if you've got non-fiction South African titles on your shelf, you've probably got many of their titles. Welcome back to the show to the Jonathan Ball Publicity team. Let's hear about what you've got coming up. Thank you, Paige, for the lovely introduction, and hello again to the listeners at Fine Music Radio. I am Mariam from the publicity team at Jonathan Ball Publishers. In the spirit of Heritage Month, today we will be unpacking themes of culture and heritage, and the importance of both in the South African society. At the start of September, we published an exciting new book called Coloured, How Classification Became Culture. Coloured is a book that promises to provide a fresh perspective on the intricate history, community and culture of the South African coloured community. This is a first-of-its-kind comprehensive look at coloured culture, identity, politics and heritage, explored through place, food, music and language, among other things. Our authors, Tessa Dooms and Lindsay Ebony Chuttle, will be leading this conversation on heritage. So without further ado, I'll hand over to you, Tessa and Lindsay, to tell us more. 
My name is Tessa Dooms, co-author of the book Coloured, How Classification Became Culture. Heritage Month in South Africa is a month for us to reflect on and talk about identity. And most often we focus on the national identity that we have as South Africans in um, pursuit of building what we've called a you know new South Africa, a rainbow nation, um, a nation that is more united. However, a focus on just the national identity means that we're not thinking about um, other parts of our identities enough. We're not talking about um, racial identities and um, particularly blackness as a construct and what blackness um, means for the way people live their lives. And we're not talking about culture enough and people's various cultural experiences in the country and um, how we live our lives and how that impacts on not only our our experiences of food or music or language, but our experiences of the economy, our experiences of politics. And so um, Coloured as a book was our opportunity, Lindsay and I, um, who was the co-author, to really start to, to reflect on coloured identity and to reflect on it not, um, you know, as a classification, but as a cultural experience that is literally colouring the way many people in this country, about 8 to 10 million people in this country, are experiencing, you know, real, real circumstances in their lives, are experiencing um, engaging in the, in the economy, are experiencing um, engaging in politics, are experiencing engaging um, in building community with other South Africans. Um, and so our offering of coloured is one that we hope will give a insight into what it means to be colored as a lived experience. It will give an insight into the history of the making of coloredness as an identity and how that identity has been a response to the history, the very difficult history of our country. Um, and also what the contestations are today about coloredness, um, what the contestations are in terms of whether the term should remain, whether there's merit to trying to discard the term. Um, but more importantly, what do those of us who have that as our identity do with it if we're going to be part of the South African story going forward in a meaningful way? So Coloured is a way for us to have that conversation, um, hopefully tell the stories of Coloured people as the core reference point, um, but end up in a place where we are seen as Coloured people more legitimately, more often, openly, more honestly, and more fully understood from a place of um, wanting to know versus wanting to judge, and um, invited and legitimized and takes space um, in the South African story as we build the South Africa we all deserve. Next up, we have Lindsay Ebony Chattel, who will continue the conversation. Hi, my name is Lindsay Ebony Chutal and I am the co-author alongside Tessa Dooms of Coloured How Classification Became Culture, which is out this month, thanks to Jonathan Ball. And it's fortuitous that this book came out during Heritage Month. And in fact, it was a dream of ours. And, you know, timing just happened that it did come out at this time because for so many coloured people, this time of the month, it's always so tricky and so fraught. So... I'll tell you a story of when my niece um, was five and she was in preschool and it was heritage month and she had to dress up in her heritage gear. And we were 
you know, we wanted her to wear something. We wanted her to be proud. She was in a multiracial preschool. But we were also like, how do we give a nod to everything and everyone that we are? And how do we instill in this little five-year-old who doesn't understand the complexity of South Africa's history just yet, how do we instill in her that sense of culture? So my niece, Sydney, who's now 18 and is grappling with these issues in a different way. But at five, we put her in a cloth from Central Africa because our headscarf, because um, our grandfather is Malawian. We put her in um, some Zulu beads because our heritage is proudly Zulu. But we also had a nod to our Africana history. But also, we just did to wear jeans because it's an urban colored history. And so we put all of these things together. And yes, she was a super bright little girl that day. But um, it, it began to make me think about how we engage with all of who we are. And when I was talking to my niece again this year, because she was asking me, can she, as a colored girl, wear braids? And I said to her, of course you can wear braids because this is who you are because our history, and she's 18 now, as I said, and she's, her history is, our history is complex and we need to embrace it. And that's what I'm hoping people will take away from this this book. You know, we looked at, when I when Tessa and I started writing the book, there was something that we, that I fully understood for the first time was the sense of orphanhood that colored people experience in South Africa. As if it's not just about the not white enough, not black enough. It's a sense that we've been abandoned. But by the end of the book, what I felt was an even greater sense of community. I felt this, you know, the story comes from a point of pain. Our history is colored by colonialism. It is colored by conquest. It is colored by enslavement. It is apartheid. You know, it's quite literally an apartheid classification. It was um, a story of abandonment. Um, it is a story of families being ripped apart because they looked different and people being taken from their homes, my family and so many other families taken from our homes in, during the Group Areas Act and placed somewhere that had nothing to do with us. What I want for people like my niece, Sydney, and my nephews and the young people of this country and for people my age who have been grappling with this since the end of apartheid is that there is pride to be found in colored culture, that we are not a classification anymore. We are a proud group of people who have a shared history, a shared way of expressing our joy, of expressing our love through food and through music. And so my hope is that when people read this book, that they not only reclaim who they are, but and that also that they see themselves in the bigger South African story because that's who we are. We are part and parcel of this country, but that they also take away a sense of joy of who they are during this Heritage Month. Thank you for listening. Wishing you a wonderful Heritage Month filled with joy and celebration. Coloured, How Classification Became Culture is on sale and available in all good bookstores. If you want to hear more about some of the exciting titles we have coming up, Follow us on social media or listen to our in-house podcast called PageCast. Thank you. To keep up with Jonathan Ball's latest book news, event updates and new releases, you can visit jonathanball.co.za and as I've suggested with the other publisher, you can follow them on all their social media. As I mentioned, they're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn and TikTok. Jonathan Ball also have a podcast. It's called PageCast. 
And with this podcast, they bring you the story behind the story, which gives you a chance to delve deeper into their authors and the books they publish. This is a really phenomenal podcast, and you can find it wherever you stream your podcasts. I highly recommend it.
That was a classic, imagined by John Lennon. If you've missed any titles we mentioned on today's show, or maybe something sounded interesting to you, but you don't remember what it was called or who the author was, well, this show appears as a podcast on our website, fmr.co.za. Or, of course, you can download our FMR app so you can listen to the podcast of today's show. Last but not least on today's show, we welcome Butcher Bricker, who is the General Manager of Books and Brands at Exclusive Books. As I mentioned earlier, Batya has a massive interview to share with us on today's show. We couldn't be more proud and more excited to welcome Mary Beard to the show. Now, Mary Beard is a British author and academic. She has so many achievements, letters, and PhDs behind her name that we would need another hour-long show to share all of her achievements with you. So let's just mention here that she's possibly the smartest person we've ever had on the show, and she has a new book out called Emperor of Rome. Welcome to the show. Hello, I'm Batya Bricker, the GM of Books and Brand for Exclusive Books. And today it is my pleasure to be in the proverbial room with Mary Beard, renowned classicist, professor at Cambridge, classics editor at TLS. She's made numerous TV series. This is my go-to bedtime watching, I must tell you. And her books have been published in 30 languages. Her previous book, SPQR sold over 500,000 copies. As recently as a decade ago, it would have seemed unlikely, actually unbelievable, for this vaguely hippieish academic with her cascade of gray hair tumbling around her shoulders, her feet shod in fabulous, albeit flat, practical shoes I've seen in all the videos, <laughs> eyes and voice a twinkle with cheeky mischief to have reached not just the heights of academic achievement, but also to become famous, loved, and admired. Mary, I wanted to ask you, did you set out to do this? Did you set out to be this icon in so many ways? Absolutely not. It's all been a thing of a surprise to me. And actually, much of my career, I was teaching in Cambridge, doing a bit of reviewing. I was always quite interested in the, the wider world of books. But, you know, I didn't have anything to do with television or any kind of mass market. I was writing extremely interesting but slightly technical <laughs> um, books and articles on Roman history. Um, and it was only really towards, well, into my kind of late 40s, early 50s, that I kind of thought I wanted to write for a wider audience. And I wanted actually to take classics to a wider audience. And telly was a wonderful way of doing that, actually. And I, I've enjoyed doing television a lot. You look like you enjoy it. Um, either you're faking it or you really do. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm a hopeless actor. So if I look like I'm enjoying it, I really am. You know, it's, you know I, I couldn't possibly fake it. And, you know, it has been fun. And it's it's also been learning experience. I mean, you know, I had a lot of practice in teaching university students. And quite a lot of that helps you for doing a television programme, actually. There's some, you know, some ways of interesting people work the same, whether you're on telly or whether you're in a lecture theatre. But there are other there are other things that you have to learn when you're talking, well, talking to an audience you can't see. And I've learned a huge amount from the, the directors and the producers and the cameramen and women and the sound men and women, um, you know, just helping, helping me find a voice for television um, as well as for lecturing. I 
guess the the nature of the storytelling is the same. It's just how you tell the story um, and how you present it. So, well, I've enjoyed it in both formats. But let's talk a little bit about ancient Rome, which is your world. Um, In your international... I'm glad it's not my world, really, because it would be a pretty horrible <laughs> don't forget. Uh, we'll come to that later. We'll come to that later. <laughs> Your new book shines the light on emperors who rule the Roman Empire, from Julius Caesar to Alexander Severus. And we're delighted to welcome this new installment in, in what has become, for me, quite addictive reading, actually. Um, it's a sweeping account of the social and political world of the Roman emperors, Cruel control freaks, diligent workaholics, extravagant teenagers. Your new book explores what the emperors of Rome were really like. And you ask big questions like what they did and why, but also how they loved, how they ate, how they lived. So it's less about going into each emperor um, and much more about what it was like to be a Roman emperor, what it meant to be a Roman emperor. Tell us more. Yeah, I mean, you've got it spot on, I think. Um, What I wanted to do uh, was to write a book that didn't kind of feed into the whole biography of Claudius, the biography of Caligula, the biography of Nero. Um, There's some very good uh, versions of that, plenty to, to buy if you want an imperial biography. What I wanted to do was to say, look, actually, you can sometimes get a lot further in understanding the power of the emperor, if you don't get fixated on the individuals, right? And I think people often feel quite worried about reading about the Roman Empire because they think, oh, God, you know, I can't tell my Marcus Aurelius from my Antoninus Pius. I want to say, don't (laughs) worry, you know. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. The Romans, you know, couldn't tell their Marcus Aurelius is from their biases <laughs> quite often. And, you know, I, and I have not the foggiest clue what the kings of England did, you know, mostly. Uh, but you can think about monarchy, you can think about autocracy and the emperors without always pinning it down to an individual. And in a way, I, I do take my cue partly from one Roman emperor, Marcus Aurelius, who, who's quite a lot of his writing we have. He looks back at... Um, his predecessors. And he says, I think, quite rightly, it's the same play, it's just a different cast. And what I'm interested in is the play, really. What's the job description of an emperor? What do they what do they do all day? You know, what do they eat? <laughs> and who's helping them do it? So I, I think that um I'm very concerned that people don't think that a a book about called Emperor of Rome is only about you know, posh white men in Rome. It's, it is about posh white men in Rome, but it's also <laughs> about the enslaved people who kept the palace running. And it's about all the people who took their problems to the Roman emperor. I mean, in a way, he's, you know, he, he can appear a bit like a kind of universal agony aunt. And you, you can see through the eyes of the begging letters, the desperate petitions that come to the emperor and that sometimes are preserved, you can see what the problems of the ordinary people in the empire, you know, the woman who'd lost her cow, you know, um, the guy who was being charged because uh, one of his slaves had dropped a chamber pot out of the top window and it had killed somebody in the street below. 
You know, was it intentional or was it not? And so focusing on the Roman Empire, on the Roman Emperor himself, does open a window into kind of bits of the Roman Empire that we don't often see. So, but there's, you know, there's plenty of stuff in there that helps you, I think, look at Roman movies better. You know, there's, you know, what, what was a banquet with the emperor like? What, how did the emperor travel? Did the emperor ever go into battle? You know, what about all those, um, lecherous wives he's supposed to have had? Um, you know, where did he live? You know, I think a lot of people have no clue, because why should they, that you can go still and you can sit where a Roman emperor, Nero, say, had his dinner. You can actually be there. So there's something very immediate about it. And I think often uh, we don't give the immediacy and the pleasure of really being there. We can we can tread around the palace where the emperors themselves walked. It's, you know, that's 2,000 years ago. It's amazing. Remarkable. I'm also very glad that I don't have to go to one of those banquets. They sound like hell, so incredibly uncomfortable. Um <laughs> Yes. I, I think eating, lying down, propped up with on your elbow, with only one hand in operation and no forks. I mean trying to reach the food. Yes. You know, and and the the Romans are amazing at their kind of ingenuity in banqueting. But you know, one of the things that I think is the most pointless habit they had was having the dining couches around a pool of water and the servants and the enslaved servants would have floated the food across to the diners on little boats. Now, how, you know, if, if, we, if we read about a modern celebrity doing that, we would say, how pointless. <laughs> Indeed, indulgent, beyond indulgent, I think. It is. Um, you, you alluded to the ordinary people, and I found that most fascinating, actually, to get a sense of some of the people around the emperor that made, facilitated the emperor's life. Can you talk about some of your favourite ordinary folk? <laughs> the ordinary folk. Well, I think that one of my favourite guys, and you don't often know very much about them, but you know enough to get a sort of window onto their world, um, is one of the imperial cooks. And he was originally slave and then freed. And his family put up a very splendid tombstone to him. And they call him something weird. They call him an Archimageros. They don't call him a cook. They call him an Archimageros. And that's kind of a really sort of flamboyantly posh title. It kind of means something like chef de cuisine, we would say. And you just get this kind of little glimpse of a guy who is proud of his status as being at the very top of the cook's hierarchy in the imperial palace. So he's one of my favourites. But another is a very grumpy man. Um, he's a grumpy <laughs> man from Roman Egypt in the 3rd century CE. And uh, we have his papyrus letters still surviving because of the, the climatic conditions in Egypt make make the survival of Roman papyri so much better there than anywhere else. And um, this guy is in charge of, in his area, trying to get all the resources, the food, the equipment, the lodgings together for a visit of the emperor to his part of Egypt. And you see his letters to people lower down the food chain saying, surely you've got the bakery ready by now, right? And they come back saying, 
well, I don't see it's our job to get the bakery ready. And then his superiors are writing to him saying, how's it going? And he has to say, well, look, I've asked them twice already to get the bakery ready. (laughs) You see this sort of this stressed middle manager uh, (laughs) in Roman Egypt um, who is desperately trying to get all the dice organized so that so that the emperor can come and have enough food and they don't know how many people he's traveling with and uh, that where are they going to put all the soldiers etc etc and so you, you Somewhat, see in some ways uh you know as much as things change they stay the same right <laughs> except i think that probably organizing a visit of the roman emperor is even more time consuming than organising a visit of King Charles III, right? I think that is pretty time-consuming. But at least you don't have to get the bakery started. Yes, <laughs> that's true. Um, you, you've spoken about Egypt, and um, I, I think that in South Africa, ethnic diversity is always top of mind. And I was so surprised to learn that ancient Rome was far more diverse than I expected. And I, I don't know if it's because... You see these statues in white marble and you think that everyone was white. Um, yes. yes. And but they really weren't. No. I mean, you think that everyone's white. That's partly um, because of the statues, which many of them would have been painted. So probably it would have looked different anyway. But also there's been a bit of an investment by Northern Europeans in making the Romans like themselves very much Um the part part of the sort of legitimation of the British Empire, for example, um, was always to see itself in the model of the Roman Empire. So you get that conflation. Now, that's the kind of conflation I was brought up with, and it's the kind of conflation that you see in kids' books now yes. often. You know, that what do the Romans look like? Well, they, they look like Brits, really, um, and white Brits at that. Actually, one of the things that is most striking about Rome is the ethnic diversity and striking not just as in amongst the ordinary population, but emperors came from all over the place. Um, And one of the one of the better things you can say about the Roman Empire, and there are many bad things to say about it, but one of the better things is that it actually worked by incorporating people from the provincial territories. And not just incorporating them, but incorporating them right up to the top of the hierarchy. So in the second century, early second century, you get emperors for the first time from Spain. But by the end of the second century and uh, into the third, you uh, have uh, emperors like Septimius Severus, who comes from Libya, he probably has an Italian origin dad and a and a Libyan mum, but he certainly he counts his home as Libya. And soon after you get Syrian emperors. And the Rome would not have looked like the the White Museum piece. We now imagine it much more ethnically diverse. And you know, that also goes uh, on the other side for slaves, because I think that I mean, a lot of students, when you're teaching them, their first instinct is to think that Roman, that enslaved Romans would be black Romans. Actually, if you think, if Romans had thought of a slave, they would much more often have thought of a ginger-haired German, I think, than, than a black African. It's fascinating. It, that's not saying 
that the Romans were without their prejudices. They were, you know, they were as, you know, capable of hating foreigners as much as any culture has been capable of hating foreigners. But systematically, they're not doing that. And there is no, so far as we can see, it's a bit contested. Um, there, there is no systematic racism in the Roman world. And one always hesitates about this because people then get the impression that it was all terribly lovely in Rome and Rome was a nice liberal society. No, it wasn't. But it didn't have some of the characteristics that we now associate with exploitation, enslavement and the rest. It was kind of lacking those. It does point to that idea of us looking at history through our 21st century lens of values um, you know, and, and you say, well, it wasn't a nice liberal place. Maybe it was a nice so-called place for the people who lived there. Liberal, possibly not, but possibly liberal was not um, something that one desired. Uh, it's one of the, the big interests of history, I think, is how to balance one's own 21st century view with a Roman view. And I think that anyone, you have to have both. I think a good history has a, both a Roman view incorporated and a modern view. And you know, I think that people who say you shouldn't impose your own views on the past, well, impose, no. But I think one of the reasons for doing history is to think about how this looks in our terms. You know, so you take gladiators, for example. I don't think it's good enough to say, well, that's what the Romans did, so it was okay for them. I think it's okay to deplore um, that kind of bloodshed. But I do think that the other side is that you can let the Romans help you think differently about your own assumptions. And I think racism is one. You know, imagine a modern empire that wasn't in some ways ethnically determined. Now, actually, Rome isn't. You know, so I think that's very important. But I think it goes down to all kinds of other things. I mean, one of the things that I think surprises people most is that the Romans didn't have prisons, right? You know, our, our notion of punishment is so bound up with incarceration. You know, we we imprison people. Now, Romans were pretty brutal, and I don't think we'd necessarily have liked what they did to their criminals, um, but it doesn't come down to removing their liberty. And that is so much of an assumption for us about um, how you punish someone, you lock them up. That would have been completely baffling to a Roman audience. So would the idea of illegal migration. You know, there was migration, but it wasn't governed by law. There's no such thing as illegal migration. I think Rome allows you to see your own world from a different standpoint and possibly to see some of the things that you take for granted that you shouldn't. Based on your own, you know, your assumptions about things like prison, um, I hadn't really thought about it. There are a myriad of alternatives to how we would so-called punish um, yes. a criminal. Yes. It doesn't have to be behind bars. No, it doesn't. Um, Again, they weren't sort of penal reformers in our, in our terms. You know, they had, but they used monetary fines, they used exile, and they used the death penalty. But prisons, no. Prison was just a place, they did have a few prisons. It was a place you went before the death penalty. It was just a holding cell. 
Mary, would you have liked to have lived in ancient Rome? Not at all. You know, I think, look, I'm a, for a start, I'm a woman. I think nobody would like to live in ancient Rome, really. I mean, you know, I think ancient Rome was, you know, imagine, imagine living in a world without any modern medicine at all, right? Imagine being a woman. Uh, you know, imagine the kind of, imagine what childbirth was like in ancient Rome. I just dread to think. Uh, and, you know, the idea that I, I would have no formal political rights. I'm sorry, that's, I think we get so entranced by all these Roman empresses who had power behind the throne. Well, sorry, I want power in front of the throne, not power behind the throne. And I'm never quite sure that even people like the scheming Empress Livia, who was supposed to have manipulated her husband Augustus, I'm never quite sure that she was as scheming as Roman male writers like to think. <laughs> Serious history takes itself seriously, but it's so much more than just the bare facts. Um, and that is something that I know you love to do and really to bring to life how the Romans would have lived in a relatable way for modern audiences. So things like Roman takeout and whoopee cushions and fake food at banquets. These colourful details make lives that have been lived so long ago familiar to us. Yes, I think they do. They do. And do you think that's important? Oh, I think that new and exciting ways of helping us relate to the past, question it, sometimes deplore it, sometimes occasionally um, admire it, um, but seeing it in that sort of almost touchable reality, I think helps us think about ourselves. I mean, I was just amazed when I discovered the story of this third century emperor, Elagabalus, who is, you know, such a, such a strange man. He makes even, even monsters like Caligula look as if they're pussycats, really. Um, what did he do at his banquets? Well, he humiliated people. So he did, as far as we can see, invent the whoopee cushion, which is that he had his <laughs> guests reclining somehow on inflatable cushions, which the slaves used to let the air out of as the evening went on. So these guys ended up on the floor. Mary, it's been an absolute honour talking to you, and we look forward to your physical visit in South Africa later this year. Mary's new book, the Emperor of Rome is now available on the shelves of exclusive books, beautifully embossed with full colour plates and printed in papers. This will be a book as decadent as any emperor could ask for. Wow, thank you to you both. Bacha Bricker, General Manager of Books and Brands at Exclusive Books, and the phenomenally talented Mary Beard. And that brings us to the end of our show today. From me, your host, Paige Nick, I always have to thank Mzuma Keta for building our show for us. I'd also like to thank all of our publishers, Jonathan Ball, Penguin Random House, as well as our favorite bookseller, Exclusive Books. Thank you for joining us and taking the time to tell us what you're publishing. Now back to it, you guys. We need more books. And we'll be back with our regular book choice show, packed with reviews and interviews in two weeks' time. Until then, happy reading! <laughs>